The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this day and we give thanks for our guest and his ministry. We give thanks that your son Jesus Christ rules over all things. And we give thanks for the mystery of the religions over which he also rules and with which he calls us to speak as neighbors. We pray for your blessing on our talk and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm still on sabbatical, but a talk about the evangelical theology of religions, it's always good to know what will rouse people out. There's a topic that'll work for me. I want to thank very uh, Amos Young for being here with us. Uh, he is one of the important voices in Pentecostal theology and theology period uh, on the scene today. Uh, presently teaches um, as the professor of theology and mission and as the director of missiological research at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, his uh, academic theological works have uh, traced the ground between theology and mission uh, in, uh, in a pneumatological way, renewing Christian theology systematics for a global Christianity, uh, um, pneumatology and the Christian Buddhist dialogue, cosmic breath, spirit of love, a Trinitarian theology of grace, and on and on. Uh, it's an important Boundary, which is of great interest to this place, and therefore we're delighted that Amos is with us. Uh, as usual, we'll have an uh, opportunity to listen to him and then a chance uh, for a conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Principal Sumner, for the introduction, but more importantly for the invitation to be with you here at Wycliffe here in Toronto. And uh, all the more honored I am that he actually took time off of his sabbatical to be here today. <laughs> Grateful for that. Before I get into our talk, um, I also want to thank um, Karen Baker, I guess it's Bigauskas, is that, did I say that correctly? I hope, is she back here somewhere? Anyway, she, she, she's done a lot to make this happen and, and work out all the details, I'm very grateful for that. And I also noticed that as I walked through the front door that there was a table there a very distinguished table with um, quite a few Fuller-related items there, um, which I'm thankful that is there. Now, I certainly understand that there is such a distinguished set of programs right here in Toronto, including the ones connected here to Wycliffe College, and you might say to yourself, why in the world would we ever want to go out all the way to Pasadena, California to do any further theological study? Not sure we can beat the theological education you're going to get here. Um, I'm not even sure we can beat the sunshine that you're going to get that you get here, pretty obviously. Um, but we might have a little bit less guck on the on the roads as you're driving around, and you might want to consider Fuller Seminary for that, at least for those reasons. <clears throat> so, entitled our talk today toward a Trinitarian theology of religions, and I've subtitled it a Pentecostal, Evangelical, and Missiological elaboration. I've got um, uh, the draft of a paper that, for the most part, I will read, um, and I will punctuate the paper uh, with commentary here and there. So explicit work on a Trinitarian theology of religions has been underway for the last generation. Constructive efforts, especially by evangelicals, however, have emerged only recently on the landscape. Ah, what does recently mean, you know? couple decades, that's pretty recent in the big scheme of things, but we, we can talk about that too. 
One of the most substantive evangelical efforts to appear so far, and quite recently, is a collaborative effort by two prominent authors, Gerald McDermott, an Episcopalian theologian and Jonathan Edwards scholar, and Harold Netlin, a philosopher of religion who has done extensive work also in Buddhist traditions. So I'm referring to their recent work entitled A Trinitarian Theology of Religions, an Evangelical Proposal, published by Oxford University Press, 2014. The following, this paper introduces their evangelical proposal, interacts analytically and critically with it, and then suggests an expansion of their ideas from a pneumato missiological perspective. I will argue that while evangelical thinking about the religions can remain disjunctive at the discursive level, and that's what I'm gonna focus the first part of my talk on with regard to McDermott and Netland's work. So while that's the case, evangelical missions vis-a-vis -vis those in other faiths presumes a much more dynamic Trinitarian praxis than developed by our authors. That's part two. And so along this latter, latter trajectory, I'm gonna propose that Trinitarian thinking requires a much more vigorous pneumatological imagination in order to sustain authentic and holistic Christian Trinitarian mission in a pluralistic world. So that's where we're headed. Part one, toward an evangelical theology of religions and we'll focus on McDermott and Netlin. And as we go through this, you'll see why I'm focusing on this as a springboard for us. Any short summary can't do, by the way, has anybody seen their book? Hey, I'm bringing new news here to Wicklow College. Um, I suppose I shouldn't ask if anybody's read the book. <laughs> now all of a sudden you've already you've read it without seeing it. It's it's it's, it's amazing what you can do here at Wycliffe. Um, so any short summary can't do justice to the richness and scope of McDermott and Netland's A Trinitarian Theology of Religions. Part one, the bulk of the volume, has seven chapters, beginning with an introduction to the field of theology of religions. The second chapter is at the heart of the book, presenting a theology of the Trinity, along with four Trinitarian criteria for thinking about theology of religions. One, on the indivisibility of the three persons. Two, on not separating the work of the Spirit and the Son. Three, on not dividing Jesus the Christ from the eternal Logos. And four, on not segregating the Father and the Son. Although not quite presented as such, these criteria function as guardrails in their book, much like what I would suggest is known as the four fences of Chalcedon. The four fences, as you might recall, delineate what ought not to be said about Orthodox Christology, so that what ought not to be said would also then ward off, these criteria would ward off what McDermott and Netland consider to be wrong turns in contemporary Trinitarian theologies of religions. And you might well guess that at the heart of their book, they uh, explicate, the, not at the heart, but particularly in the first couple chapters of the book, they explicate how wrong turns are taken. And they demonstrate that with regard to a number of scholars, S. Mark Heim, Amos Young, Raimundo Panikar, and Miroslav Wolf. 
now you might get a little idea about why we're focusing on this book today. <laughs> Their convictions, McDermott's and Netland's, are presented as grounded in the scriptural narrative's witness to the triune God, and the rest of their book depends on such a guiding Trinitarian vision. Methodologically, however, our authors are guided less exegetically than theologically, the four criterion. Theologies of the religions are to be based on the deposit of Christian revelation in the Bible as understood according to the main lines of the received dogmatic tradition of the church rather than developed in conversation with or attendant to the religions themselves, whether it be historical attentiveness, phenomenological analyses, or other kinds of data that might be derived empirically from the religions. So, we will return later in this talk to ask if such a methodological guideline has been or can be followed through in their book. I'm going to suggest that the rest of the chapters of the book do not evince quite such a robust and thoroughgoing Trinitarian perspective. This is not to say that there are not insightful and even rich discussions of important and difficult questions in theology of religions in the rest of the, their pages. So again, the first two chapters or so are really focused on the criteria, how they're being applied in contemporary Trinitarian theologies of religions, and then the rest of their book goes in some other directions. But it is to note that the evangelical responses that they provide are more generally theological than explicitly Trinitarian. So when considering in chapter four, Revelation and the religions, for instance, the suggestion appears in conversation with patristic notions of the Logos Spermatikos about the possibility of, quote, the Logos opening eyes and enlightening minds and hearts, unquote. But the constructive response does not explore pneumatological angles on this question. So part of what I'm suggesting is that there is certainly a focus on thinking about revelation and religions with regard to Logos Christology. But if you will, this fully Trinitarian exploration doesn't, uh, doesn't attend to any pneumatological elements that might be considered in this discussion of revelation and religions, or how it might be connected or not with the Christology. The next chapter on salvation and conversion tackles challenging issues regarding Jesus as the only savior, discusses the difficult topic of universalism, and asks about the salvific value or potency of other faiths, but these traditional evangelical responses are not undergirded by Trinitarian theological reflection. In other words, what you see in the fifth chapter on soteriology and the religions is, again, a very, if you will, um, if you will, even comprehensive evangelical discussion of soteriology and the religions. But the Trinitarian guidelines developed in the first couple of chapters are at best implicit, certainly nowhere explicit in this chapter. The last three chapters of their book turn from more abstract to concrete topics, the Christian life, on religions and cultures, and on Christian witness. Again, a slate of valuable matters are broached on morals, morality, ethics, and the religions, on salvation by works, salvation by works, on the issues of contextualization, of modernity, and uh, the transformation of the religions in modernity, 
on globalization and impact on world religions and on religious impact on globalizing processes and on the difficult question of the relationship between religion and culture. Again, on mission and dialogue and apologetics. So again, I mean, these are all important questions to be discussed when we talk about the Christian life vis-a-vis the religions, on religion and culture, on Christian witness in a pluralistic world. They're all there in this book. But again, the treatments are generally evangelical and theological and rarely Trinitarian, at least in the way that was set out in the first couple chapters of the book. Formally, I would say, there might be little to disagree with in terms of if you're looking for a more or less evangelical treatment of these topics and these matters, well, you'll get a good survey, you'll get a good set of evangelical options, but we opened the book because it said a Trinitarian theology of religions. And my suggestion is that after the first couple of chapters, little of the Trinitarian conversation carries forward. So methodologically, I think it's a little bit ironic that the evangelical praxis in, this cha- in these chapters is much more attuned to the concrete particularities of other faiths than in the earlier, more theoretical chapters, right? So I, the earlier, more theoretical chapters much more retrieve or attempt to retrieve and restate the dogmatic tradition as it applies to thinking about uh, Trinity and the religions theologically. These latter chapters, again, talking about the Christian life, religion and cultures, Christian witness, now actually turn to and focus on concrete particularities, um, look empirically, historically, phenomenologically, um, experientially at, at, if you will, uh, what people of other faiths say, do, believe, practice, and so on. And those now are factored into thinking about how do we think about the Christian life in a pluralistic world? How do we think about religion and cultures? How do we think about Christian witness? So for example, the discussion of the Christian life considers the possibility of learning in this sphere of living out the faith from other religions And there is an extended examination of, quote, Confucianism's single-minded devotion to moral virtue, unquote, as having something important to teach evangelical believers. Um, If you're familiar with the work of Gerald McDermott, you'll realize that he also wrote a book about 10 years ago called Can Evangelicals Learn from World Religions, Um, in which he, he takes quite a bit of time and effort to explore, I think, three or four or five uh, major world religions and, 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 and have honest and, and substantive evangelical conversations in which it's not just evangelical sort of speaking to, but also evangelical learning from. So in other words, can evangelicals learn from world religions, question mark? In that book in 2000, the answer is yes. And he attempts to um, demonstrate that yes in a way that puts some substance to the response. Then in order to specify how religion and culture are intertwined with the processes of modernization and globalization in our time, a phenomenological approach is adopted, now I'm talking about the current book again, and the case of Buddhist transformations in modernity are analyzed at some length, both for what they tell us about Buddhist traditions as well as for what they might tell us about how Christianity might also be engaging with globalization. And if you're familiar with the work of Harold Netlin, who's been at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for a couple of decades, you'll know that he's done extensive work on Buddhist traditions, uh, Buddhist-Christian dialogue, Buddhist-Christian encounters, and a lot of that's drawn upon then in this part of the book, in chapter eight on religion, culture, religion, and modernity. So it appears then 
that the first few chapters devoted more strictly to Trinitarian theology, configured to engage the religion, uh, uh, configured to think about the religions, those first few chapters are reluctant to engage directly with other faiths. While the latter chapters focus on expl explicating Christianity and religious life and spirituality in a pluralistic world, are less specifically Trinitarian and much more open to considering how religious traditions might contribute to Christian thought and practice. So I'm making a methodological observation here about how the book is structured, right? Opening up with uh, robust theological dogmatic moves, uh, not engaging at all with concrete specificities of other faiths. In the latter chapters, when you talk about actually engagement, it's, uh, there's quite a bit there, uh, looking at other faiths in particular, but very little of the Trinitarian theological uh, material brought forward in that part. So a number of questions emerge by the time at least I get to the close of the book. While it does not seem as if McDermott and Netlin intend such bifurcations, what kind of bifurcations? For example, between theology and practice, or between Trinitarian theology and let's say theology and culture, or theology and mission. So again, while it does not seem as if they intend such bifurcations, what emerges might suggest otherwise. Why else the reluctance to think with other religions in the earlier part of the book contrasted with the relative ease with which dialogue with other faiths manifests in the latter sections? There's no doubt that our duo desire to bring together belief in action, doctrine and practice. In fact, I'm actually quoting right there from early part of the book. But this appears as a division of labor, labor between theologies of the other religions in the first chapters and practices or missionary endeavors vis-a-vis -vis those in other faiths in the latter chapters. Now the possibility of the reverse, how ministerial and missiological praxis might actually inform theological reflection does not seem to register themselves, register itself in the book. Rather, thinking or theorizing about others theologically stands apart from what other faiths might be in themselves, while practical considerations then follow which allow the concreteness of other religious traditions to be factored into the discussion. I want to suggest that the McDermott and Netland project betrays such a dichotomy if only because its Trinitarianism is more conceptual than emergent from out of the hermeneutical circle is what I'm going to suggest. My claim presumes the argument that a fully Trinitarian theology and confession, one involving both Christological and pneumatological dynamics, itself originally derived from out of Christian praxis. Right? So when you think about the fourth century developments and articulations of pneumatology, for instance, after Nicaea, right? Um, particularly with the Cappadocians. You, you, you understand, we understand, we see that uh, the confession, the understanding of the divinity of the spirit is related to the liturgical praxis, the baptismal praxis, for instance, among a number of other uh, praxis and liturgically oriented set of experiences that, that informs the kind of theolo theologizing that leads up to the second, to the second uh, that leads up to the um, Constantinople in 381. So if this is right, it invites, I suggest, a slight methodological ad adjustment to the McDermott-Nutland project that corrects both the division between belief and practice and the demarcation between theology about other religions versus practice with other faiths. 
In the third part of this essay, I will tease out the rudiments of such a pneumatologically more rigorous Trinitarian theology of other faiths that is consistent with and secures contemporary Christian and evangelical missiological praxis. But now I want to turn a little bit more specifically before going to that constructive move to analyzing a little bit further um, what I call the pneumatological deficit in McDermott and Nutland's work. So I'm entitling the second section, Trinitarian, Trinitarianism, the Religions and Mission, Wither the Holy Spirit. You might say that the wither can be spelled either W-H-I-T-H-E-R or W brackets H-I-T-H-E-R. McDermott and Nettland introduced the theology of religions and the pneumatological paradigm that I've developed in their discussion of the criterion regarding not demarcating the Son and the Spirit. I mentioned that earlier. They're concerned mostly about the proposal, my proposal early on in uh, my work. I started out doing theology of religions in my doctoral dissertation and two, three, three out of my first six books were focused on theology of religions kinds of issues. Um, so they, they, they're concerned about the proposal early on in my work that in order to assess and evaluate, to discern is the language that I use, I have used then, I still use today, to discern or evaluate and assess other faiths, ought to deploy pneumatological categories rather than impose Christological ones. To facilitate such an approach, I had also considered how the economies of the word and the spirit are related but yet distinct so that pneumatological considerations could be foregrounded before engaging Christological norms. While accurately identifying my wanting missionaries and other Christians engage in interreligious dialogue to listen sympathetically to, uh, to, to other religious perspectives, McDermott and Netlin think that the approach, my approach, mistakenly separates the missions of the Spirit and the Son. More to the point, they are reluctant to think pneumatologically about whatever might be good, true, and beautiful in other faiths, preferring instead classically reformed categories, such as under the overarching rubric of common grace, as opposed to special or saving grace, which they consider to be more properly pneumatological. From their perspective, Christian theological reflection cannot but be Christological, even if that means imposing Christian norms on other religions. So contrary to what I had suggested, they insist that there is no neutral ground between religions and those in other faiths can do no less than make judgments according to their own commitments in their assessment of Christian beliefs and practices. I'll return in a moment to briefly comment on whether other religionists or scholars of other faiths can approach other religious traditions by prioritizing or foregrounding their own religious norms. From a Christian perspective, however, I want to suggest a few considerations. Firstly, that the task of not bearing false witness against our neighbors of other faiths requires that we attempt to understand them first on their own terms. Our efforts to do so cannot, therefore, but bracket, even if only momentarily, our own commitments in order to at least empathize, if not sympathize, with them. McDermott and Nettland themselves urged their readers to consider the moral similarities, the common good, and the possibility of learning from those in other faiths. However, while they separate such from their theological reflections, preferring instead to emphasize theological differences, particularly in the first half of their book, 
and are more comfortable about opening up such avenues of thinking under the category of Christian life, the latter part of their book. I have persisted in asking about such matters theologically, both not only with regard to Christian life and mission, but also with regard to thinking theologically. The undesirable alternative, it seems to me, is that we provide pragmatic rationale for our willingness to entertain considerations about learning from religious others, right? In other words, our, our, the, it's, if we follow the, at least what, how it's written out in, in McDermott and Nutland, then, then what we're saying is that, well, when we get around to Christian life and we get around to living life in the real world and we get around to, to witness, um, that's when we start paying attention to religious others and actually the real world kinds of things. And that's when we start. So it's a very pragmatically motivated and oriented rationale at that point. I'm, I'm, I'm all for being pragmatic. I'm American, right? Be pragmatic, you know? Um, but is that the only criterion for thinking and doing theolo theology, right? Um, why, why does that set of pragmatic instincts guide only that part of our interface with other faiths and not our thinking theologically about with them and about them as well. And such pragmatism, if you will, can, will, will be quickly seen through by others as ploys for manifesting apparent friendliness in order to cloak other agendas. Now, I'd be the first to admit that my own fallibility as a theologian invites continued reconsideration and in some cases even revision of theological thinking. Yet in the big scheme of things, I think the pneumatological deficit in McDermott and Netland's theology of religions leads them to exaggerate the faults of what I suggest, and that opens up a chasm between what is otherwise intended as a complementary proposal. So while I admit the language of neutrality may be misleading in the sense that in our postmodern climate, few will believe that human subjectivity and bias can be absolutely bracketed so that any allegedly universal standpoint or neutral standpoint can be identified as to mediate between two or more religious traditions, my pneumatological proposal remains, was and remains an attempt to secure more explicitly Trinitarian grounding for allowing those in other faiths to register their perspectives without our prejudgment. Christological criteria for assessing other faiths is scandalous because of its particularity. But on that score, Buddhological or Quranic or whatever other criteria that you might want to consider for evaluating other faiths is equally scandalous because that is what constitutes their specificity. Right? So what we have is multiple scandals going back and forth. And there's a place for that. We can talk about that maybe in the Q&A. I'm far from saying that religionists should never proclaim their particular commitments from out of the depths of their religious lives. However, if that is all that happens, then possibly in many cases, no authentic understanding of others can develop. From this perspective, if, relig if each religious tradition begins, continues with, and ends with its unique set of commitments, people of faith will never find theological reasons for appreciating others on their terms. My view is that McDermott and Netlin do want to learn from other religions, but their motivation is neither permitted nor propelled by their Trinitarian construct. Trinitarianism, in my reading of McDermott and Netlin, is a means for demarcating Christian difference from other faiths. I would certainly not deny that a full-orb Christian doctrine of the Trinity is distinctive from whatever other triune patterns are discernible in other religious traditions. Yet the Trinitarian substance of their proposals seems rather thin after chapter two. 
I would press that the persisting questions are how to understand revelation, salvation, conversion, Christian life, cultural realities, and Christian witness vis-a-vis other faiths, not only in light of Christian Trinitarian teaching, which is the legacy of the dogmatic tradition, but also in light of Christian praxis, what I would call Christologically and pneumatologically shaped mission. The pneumatological approach I propose, for instance, would invite reflection on the fruits of the spirit that in turn provide a springboard for considering the virtues promoted by other faiths. Before Christological or others or other normative Christian theological criteria kick in. So again, let me be clear. I'm not opposed to Christological commitments. And in fact, I've applauded how more recently Christologically grounded offerings have urged engaging with and learning from religious others. I'm thinking of the work, for instance, of uh, scholars, theologians like Bob Robinson, his book, Jesus and the Religions, Retrieving a Neglected Example for a Multicultural World. Another one I'm thinking about is Paul Lewis Metzger, Connecting Christ, How to Discern Jesus in a World of Diverse Faiths. People like these more recently are actually, again, using Christology, thinking Christologically in order to uh, provide, again, Trinitarian rationale for adhering and listening to other faiths on their terms. The kind of stuff I've been proposing pneumatologically as a complement to these kinds of projects. So my own meager contributions have sought merely to explore how a pneumatological approach to theology of religions, interfaith encounter, and comparative theology, among other related arenas, might contribute both to understanding other faiths and to a deepened Christian commitment. On hand, both. I suggest that a more developed pneumatological theology of religions bridges the gap that we see the McDermott-Netlin argument between doctrine and practice and empowers a more holistic Trinitarian theology and witness toward those in other faiths in our pluralistic world. Okay, so now we look go to the last section, which I've entitled Toward a Trinitarian Missiology of Religions, a Pneumatological Elaboration. So the following is intended to complement McDermott and Netland's efforts. Let me suggest that a Pentecostal and pneumatological theology of religions can also simultaneously be understood as a pneumatological missiology of interfaith encounter. I elaborate briefly on this proposal by suggesting three theses from the Day of Pentecost narrative in Acts 2. So when I use the word Pentecostal, um, that kind of gets confusing sometimes because you know I come from what's considered a Pentecostal church, Pentecostal denomination. But when I use the word Pentecostal, I'm thinking more about Acts 2 and the Day of Pentecost narrative and how that works. I might get those two confused sometimes, but you might forgive me for that. Okay, so thesis one. The many tongues of Pentecost invite consideration of God's redemptive work among and through not only the many languages, but also the many cultures and perhaps even the many religions of the world. That's a thesis. Now for just a bit of explication. There's little disagreement among theologians today about the relationship between the many tongues and the diversity of cultures. And there's little disagreement even about how the Pentecost narrative is consistent with God's eschatological plans to redeem people from many tribes and nations. My my argument, my suggestion, is that the distinction between culture and religion, while valid in some respects, is artificial if pressed too far. Languages, cultures, and religious traditions are demarcatable in principle, but also historically, 
intertwined and mutually informing. The day of Pentecost narrative indicates that when redeemed, purified, or sanctified by the Spirit, the languages of the world, including cultures and even religious traditions, I would suggest, can be vehicles for, quote, speaking about God's deeds of power. That's a new Revised Standard Version, Acts 2.11. This does not mean that either linguistic or cultural, much less religious traditions can be or are wholesale conduits of divine salvation in Jesus Christ. Not even Christianity as religion, religious tradition saves, to be frank. But what is now required is discernment about how Christ is proclaimed and where the Spirit's presence and activity might be manifest, whether linguistically, culturally, or even religiously. Along this road, the Trinitarian question is opened up for intercultural and interreligious exploration. What I'm proposing is that a pneumatological approach provides specifically Trinitarian rationale for being attentive to other cultural and religious perspectives and for attempting to comprehend them at least initially, if not as much as possible, on their terms. The mystery of the Pentecost event constituted in part in the puzzlement of those from among the Mediterranean world. Quote, how is it that we hear, each one of us, in our own native language, unquote. Acts 2.8. In today's pluralistic and global context, such a Pentecostal perspective justifies the kind of authentic listening to and learning from cultural and even religious others, advocated by McDermott and Nedlin. To be sure, upon prolonged engagement, lines will need to be drawn and differences also identified. However, the task of listening first to differentiating later is bolstered and buttressed from start to finish by this pneumatological and Trinitarian theology. So this initial thesis operates primarily at a methodological level. While it is a meta-thesis regarding the how of interreligious engagement, it also secures the ground for such engagement theologically. The importance of this Trinitarian platform for adhering to religious others and interacting with them should not be underestimated. Christian witness and mission oftentimes otherwise proceeds merely instrumentally. Christians are urged to heed those in other faiths in order to gain their trust so that their Christian message can eventually be delivered. I counter as an assist to the Trinitarian vision underdeveloped in McDermott and Netland, that a more pneumatologically rich theology includes as well methodological warrants capable of revitalizing matters at this intersection where Christianity meets other faiths, even at the level of doctrine and theology. Thesis two. The many tongues of Pentecost, therefore, open up to many missional and, I might say, missiological and evangelistic practices vis a vis those in other faiths. A bit of explication now. I invite us to consider the interwoven nature of beliefs and practices that McDermott and Nutlin do support, at least in the latter part of their book. Languages are only arbitrarily abstracted from life worlds and the performative dimensions of human life. If that's the case, then, that the spirit inspires many tongues brings with it the stimulation of many practical responses as well. From a missional or missiological perspective, then, it's not surprising to note how the apostolic witness takes on many different practical and behavioral forms. Now, what is such a pneumatological approach, or you could say pneumatological Pentecostal approach to the interfaith encounter 
look like practically and missionally. Let me suggest that a more elaborated pneumatological and Trinitarian theological missiology underwrites the many forms of Christian witness and engagement in the interfaith context. Christian witness proceeds charismatically, proclaiming the good news of Christ, shalomically in embodying the good works of Christ, and spiritually to counter other principalities in the power of Christ, among other modalities. Most evangelical missionaries have developed missiological justification for a broad scope of missional, missionizing strategies and practices. But oftentimes these are fueled pragmatically rather than theologically, or what I'm suggesting, pneumatologically, or Pentecostally, or Trinitarianly, as I'm suggesting. I argue that a pneumatological theology of mission in a pluralistic world nurtures theologically a diversity and plurality of missiological practices. Why are so many different mission, missiological practices important? The short answer is because human creatures are not only thinking, cognitive creatures, but also feeling, affective beings. As such, Christian faith is constituted not only by orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but also by orthopathy, right feeling, right affectivity. Here we have a further reason for foregrounding pneumatology in order that our Trinitarianism facilitates not only right thinking and right behaving, but also right hoping, right desiring, right feeling. When thinking about and engaging with the dynamics of religious life and practice and spirituality, the missiological task has to be attentive to the affective level of interreligious and interpersonal interaction. Conversion involves reorientation, not only of human heads, but also of human hands, and perhaps most importantly, of human hearts. And this has perennially been perhaps the biggest challenge for our evangelical approaches to religious others. My proposal is that the difficulties can be remedied or alleviated theologically, and that developing a pneumatological angle is central to such task. Just a quick side note. Um, I think oftentimes when we talk to missionaries, right, who come back from the field, um, they, they have developed all kinds of, you know, very innovative ways of hospi being hospitable to, engaging, befriending, missionizing, etc. right, that, that don't seem to correlate as well sometimes with the way in which the theologies are structured. They become very, very pragmatic ways of living in a pluralistic kind of a world. And what I'm suggesting is that we can, we can and we should develop theologically grounded rationale for this kind of missionizing innovativeness, this kind of missionizing breath, if you will. You know, how to be with, how to be present with, how to live in, if you will, a pluralistic world. Um, why are these only just pragmatic strategies? Why aren't these theologically grounded? That's at least part of the question I'm asking us to think about. So thesis three. Many tongues of Pentecost nurture transformative spaces and pathways for Christian mission in a world of many faiths. What I mean here is that whatever else Christian mission achieves vis-a-vis -vis those in other faiths, whose conversion is first and foremost the work of the Holy Spirit, not for us to manipulate, so whatever else we might achieve, the encounter with others can, accompl uh, can accomplish our own transformation. Missionary experience experiences teaches us that it is the sent ones or those that journey to the far country to meet with and minister to others, they are the ones who are the most transformed. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, um, they'll send back, I mean, in my denomination, we often get these missionary reports that talk about all the other people that are being transformed, right? And of course, that's good to know as well. Um, but when you really sit down to talk to them about their missionary life and, and, and experiences, they'll tell you that they went a certain kind of person and they're returning four years later or eight years, whatever the case might be, and they're a very, very different person because of the kinds of experiences that they've had working in these domains. <clears throat> Whereas some might want to emphasize the anthropological aspects of these journeys of personal transformation, yeah, certainly we should, and we should get at all of the anthropological dimensions of this. I also want to highlight their theological character. The apostolic mission and the power of the Spirit not only resulted in the salvation of Cornelius, but also in the conversion of Peter. How might such a pneumatological theology of interfaith relations be transformational for us, those attempting to bear Christian witness in a pluralistic world today? So here again, the many tongues of Pentecost not only summon many practices of witness, but many forms of theological interchange. One level is how the Spirit might inspire Christian apologetics in an interfaith context, and that the, the character of that, those kind of apologetic under, undertakings might um, exhibit a, a broad spectrum, a, a diversity, if you will, of apolog, apologetic strat strategies and modalities of interface. Others might adopt a more exploratory, comparative approach, seeking to carefully delineate how Christian faith is similar to, but also different from other faiths, and oftentimes in the process of that effort at comparative theology, resulting in a deeper grounding of Christian faith commitments, but precisely by deeply engaging the other on the other's terms. A third trajectory is the task of constructive theology in our multi-faith world, which is how does Christian theological reflection proceed in conversation with or in the presence of those in other faiths? My own work has moved primarily in the latter two veins, meaning the comparative and the constructive trajectories. My suggestion is that a pneumatological approach is one way to secure a Trinitarian and theological, one way, not the only way. Doesn't mean that people like Robinson, Metzger with their Christological contributions are not also doing something similar. But it's one way to secure specifically the Trinitarian and theological certification for doing Christian theology in a constructive mode amidst an interfaith milieu. Right? I mean, if we're gonna talk Trinitarian theology, then I think we need to see a lot more of pneumatology in that undertaking. Each of these tasks, the, let's say the apologetic, the compared to constructive, are interrelated but yet distinct. But each is imperative and deserves to be cultivated with whatever resources are available for Christian theology going into the middle of the 21st century. From a day of Pentecost perspective, that the Spirit has been poured out in the last days, Acts 2.17, indicates that such a pneumatological thrust complements, if not supplements, the theological conviction that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. If so, then a fully Trinitarian theology of mission cannot but be robustly pneumatological as well. Some concluding thoughts. Jerry McDermott and Harold Netland have done evangelicals and other theologians of the religions an invaluable service in their efforts to formulate a Trinitarian understanding of religions. While the bulk of my talk and essay has underscored the underdeveloped pneumatology, I affirm their project and urge evangelical theologians and missiologists and others interested in the religions to carefully read their book. Now you know about it, actually. 
My present analysis has attempted to highlight how a missiological perspective can be invigorated by a pneumatological approach to the interfaith domain. In this context, McDermott and Netlin are right to insist on the interrelationship between Christology and pneumatology. In Pentecostal parlance, not only does Christ send the Spirit, but the Spirit also enables understanding of Christ. In that sense, even in the interfaith context, Christology and pneumatology are intertwined. I want to conclude, however, by also insisting that it is the Father who both sends the Son and the Spirit, and that it is the Spirit who reconciles all through the Son to the Father. In that case, our understanding of the Son and the Father, not to mention our union with the Son and the Father, are pneumatologically facilitated. Evangelical missions in particular, not to mention Christian missions in general, operates according to, if not also benefits from, this pneumatological logic and framing in a multi-faith context, even if such pneumatological dynamics are not initially or adequately understood. I'm grateful for Jerry McDermott and Harold Netlin and their work for providing us, especially me, with this opportunity to probe more deeply the pneumatological features of holistic Trinitarian witness in a pluralistic world. Thank you very much. I believe we do have uh, some time for questions. If you have a question, just please wait till I get to you so you can use the microphone as well. You talked about missionaries. Let's, can you guide, say, uh, a hospital chaplain? Uh, a Buddhist grandfather dies, his wife is there, evangelical daughters there, an unbelieving son is there. Uh, what would you say? How would you pray? What, what, what goes on? Because everybody senses something sacred has happened. We don't, what's the vocabulary we use? You, you sound like you've had some of those experiences. I want to hear more from you about Yeah, so I think that there's a real sense in which, you know, the label of Buddhist or Muslim or, or, or Jew or, or Hindu um, are placeholders, right? I mean, Christian, you know, what kind of Christian? You know, what Christian traditions, what kind of commitments? A nominal, you know, whatever the case might be, right? So just because somebody's labeled a Christian family, we don't really know where they're at until we actually sort of hang out with them and talk to them and try to figure out where they're at not only in terms of the person that may be dying or, or maybe has passed away, but also with regard to the family members, right? So um, it seems to me that, that what I call the discerning process in that case um, would be equally applicable, right? Uh, if we have a, a quote unquote, you know, Buddhist family that we're trying to minister to. Um, you know, th there may be one or two or more of them that might be very open to a Christian hospital chaplain uh, bringing their Christian expertise and then all of that into the situation. Um, now, I don't know. I'm not sure how different Canada and the U.S. is on this point um, with regard to, you know, whether it's some of the laws or, or how, how, or um, maybe even best practices for, for chaplaincy and all this kind of thing. But, but from my perspective, I would say that um, we shouldn't assume that any, any of the labels give us a clear mandate for anything. 
the labels are an invitation for us to enter into the discussion, assuming that the discussion is welcome. Um, if, if the opportunity is there to present Christ in a more forthright way, I certainly think we should take advantage of that opportunity. Um, if we're dealing with a situation in which um, they might be less comfortable with that, then we've got to adapt and, and bear witness in other ways besides the more obvious ones, perhaps. Um, we, we, may, we may actually encounter a quite committed set of family members to their particular religious tradition, not only quite committed, but quite knowledgeable, right? Um, at that point, I think the more questions, we'll probably be asking a lot more questions, you know, because asking a lot more questions mean that's our way of attempting to discern, isn't it? What, what actually should I do at this point? How should I pray at this point? Should I pray at this point? At what point should I pray? And how does that prayer go, right? So again, it's an opportunity for us to, to listen, to um, figure out where they're at, and then hopefully respond rightly. I, I thank you very much for that. I'll take that. Um, I wonder if you could uh, say something about what a more robustly pneumatological Trinitarian theology would have to offer with, to an engagement with uh, the other religion that probably most people here are concerned about, which is the rigidly monotheistic Islam. Uh, and Someone else have a question? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. Well, that's probably, of course, the, the major world religious tradition that I'm probably least familiar with, um, just in terms of my own study, my own um, ongoing development. Um, there's been a fellow at Luther Seminary who actually used some of my early work uh, to propose a, he applied what I, at that point, and I still have, you know, call it a pneumatological imagination of thinking about mission in an Islamic context. Um, I think one of the, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk just out of my ignorance here, but since you ask, you can forgive my ignorance, right? But, um, well, okay, what kind of Islam? Uh, again, Islam, it's compl complicated, right? Um, sort of a, a more high church kind of Islam, a more popular folk kind of Islam, and everything in between, and got Sunni traditions and Sufi traditions. And um, it's interesting, I mean, from, and now I'm talking as a modern Pentecostal, um, you know, it seems that, that we've had some success as a denomination in certain parts of the Islamic world, in part because uh, the willingness to engage with Muslims at the popular level in terms of the, at the level of spirituality. Um, I, I wonder sometimes whether or not it's some of those, kind, you know, so, so some people say that, that Pentecostalism is known less for its theology than its spirituality. I think there's some truth to that, right? Um, but what, you know, what, as we think through that spirituality, I think we start asking pneumatological questions. And, and how do these kinds of pneumatological questions also then perhaps allow us to facilitate engagement with um, other religious traditions, Islam included, but that are manifest more at the, at the popular level, at the, at the folk or, or folk level, if you will, um, in which people are engaging at the level of spirituality, engaging at the level of affectivity, and engaging at the level of oral culture rather than literate culture, right? 
Um, Pentecostalism, again, it's, it's much more of an oral cultural sort of ethos. Um, I, I do think that there's a very intriguing correlation, let's say, between life in the spirit and a kind of oral way of being in the world, a, a kind of oral modality that's affective, right? That's, um, I mean, it's not to minimize against the importance of literate culture, but, but engaging the world through text, as in, I mean, I'm a theologian, we, we all do these things. You're here at seminary. We do. But uh, the majority of the world um, operates at this oral level, right? Uh, this oral level is the, the level of the heart, the level of affect, um, the level of sound, level of hearing, if you will, um, that, that opens up all kinds of other domains of, of, of interaction. Dreams and visions, for instance, you know, um, they're, they're part of this sort of oral cultural landscape. Quite prominent in Pentecostal charismatic spirituality. Um, seems like they've, they've opened up possibilities for engaging, talking with people in other faiths that for whom those pathways have religious significance other than, you know, it's because of some kind of id and, and, and ego and, and unconscious coming through. I mean, there's, you know, these, these are portals to connect with the world beyond us in some way. So it's a lot there, uh, you know, to sort of unpack perhaps. Um, but yeah, the world's complicated. It's a lot to unpack. I was just wondering if... Um when you were looking at Acts chapter 2, whether there was anything that kind of tantalized you or made you um, think about possibilities from the language of Acts 2 about your theme. For example, um, um, there, are, there are tongues that appear as a result of a big wind coming from heaven, and then all the men under heaven hear of the mighty deeds of God. Um, and uh, Peter's invocation of Joel seems to be quite sort of wide-ranging in its, in its uh, reference, man, women, sun, moon, blood. Um, so I was, just, I was just wondering if there was, if, if there was anything in um, the specifics of Acts 2 that had struck you. I just looked at it for the first time in a long time now and I just wondered what you could say more about the possibilities, if such there be. Thank you. Um, yes. The, the tongues that alight... Right, so, so phenomenologically, the Pentecost event en engages us, what I would call, at multiple epistemic registers, right? The, there's, of course, the speech. And, of course, on, on the flip side of the speech is the hearing. Again, the oral culturality here at that point. Um, but then there's the tongues that alight, right? Um, the sound of the wind is not only heard, but wind is also felt. And, and seeing the tongues that come down, right? So the, all these registers, I think, appear there. Um, and in some of my work, I've, I've talked about it in, tongue, in terms of, um, um, you know, these many tongues are reflective of the many epistemic modes in which we, the many sensorial modes even, perhaps, in which human beings live and move and engage with the world. And um, I've done quite a bit of work on disability, for instance, uh, in, you know, the, the various sorts of sensory impairments um, and, and thinking about how... But then when you look back and say that if Acts 2 and the gift of the Spirit to the apostles was simply to continue the ministry of Christ, 
Then you look and see how, how, how you know, as Spiro's on Christ and Luke, how does he interact and interface with others, with the world around him? And he does it in all those ways as well. And he does it also through a level of, of the touch. So there's this embodied, holistic, interpersonal form, right? So there's that. Um, that, I think, invites us to be present to people of other faiths. And if, if we want to extend it in this direction that we're talking about today, then in all of these different ways, right? So that, so that the interfaith encounter is mediated not only at one level. And this is not to, again, deny the importance of textuality. So I'm all for, you know, scriptural reasoning. I'm all for doing all of those kinds of, kinds of activities. Um, but if we only focus in on one domain, um, then there are lots of other domains in which we're... we're not learning from, not, not actually benefiting from, if you will. Um, yeah, then the latter part with regard to the comprehensiveness, you know, and that, then when I think of, so another thing in terms of this question, when you, when you look at that list of nations there in Acts 2, it's a very peculiar list, and of course there's lots of study about why those, why those particular names and places and not others, and, and most, I think, regardless of where they land on, on that kind of a question, would say that this is a representative list. It's a representative of, of lists of nations, kinds of strategies that we, feed, that we see in the, in the First Testament, for instance, right? Um, the, the, the representative listing is consistent with um, the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And, and you shall receive power and all spirits come upon you. Remember when it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and, and the rest of the of the Acts narrative is about sort of telling about that, that story. And Acts 2, in that respect, says the ends of the earth have in some respects come here as well, right? But regardless of that, there's still a particularity of those specific places and not any number of others, not any one or the other of the, seven, the list of 70. You know, why, why didn't Luke just run the whole list through it at that point? Uh, well, he had a genealogy that might have, that might have answered some of that question. But anyway, the point is that, that even if you look at the list that's there, there's some very fascinating locales name, and there, there's very fascinating opportunities to think about interfaith kinds of matters. When you think about Arabs, when you think about, you know, Cretans, when you think about uh, Egyptians, when you th you know, the, the names that are there invite the theology of religions kinds of, of considerations. I think um, that open up the possibility for or thinking afresh, including about the maybe the Christian Muslim issue here. Um, rereading sort of Luke and Acts in light of this reference in Acts 2. Then, then of course, the, the, the calling from Joel, I mean, there's a number of adjustments that, this is complicated, right? This is Luke writing, supposedly relaying what Peter is saying, quoting from Joel. So you've got multiple layers here of, of um, interpretive levels in which we need to be attentive to. Um, but the universality, men and women, I mean, in the, in, the first, uh, in the first century mind, that's a way of referring to everybody. Um, young and old, again, it's not that people didn't recognize there were folks in between, but, but the point of the way in which that language is used is, again, all right, um, refers to that, and slave and free, right? So this, this is kind of like, um, this is maybe Luke's version of, you know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave nor free. Um, I find, again, that, that this is one of the adjustments that is made here in, in Acts 2, is the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. So we're still talking about, that's, that's concreteness, that's specificity, that's, 
that's human creatureliness, right? Um, and, and the same spirit who comes upon the incarnate Christ, the fleshliness of Christ, is the spirit then who alights upon um, human fleshes, if you will. And that gives me pause. I mean, it gives me pause before you as people of the spirit. Um, before we get to the labels, you know, you're uh, Anglican, I don't know what you are, but whatever the labels are that you might claim for yourself. But even before, <laughs> even before we get to whatever, your, whatever labels there are that, that, might, might, that might be appropriate for you at a certain level, um, you are a spirit enlightened upon person. Now, we can get into all kinds of issues here about you know, is this, does this mean that, that universally then the spirit has been poured out? And part of my response to that is that this is as much a performative invitation as it is a historically de declarative one, right? I mean, part of the point for Luke was to say that when the spirit is poured out upon you, then you shall bear witness to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth and the ends of time. Um, and Acts 29 allows us to continue that. That's that story, if you will, right? So yeah, I mean, is it universal? Well, uh, you know, maybe. We're not done yet. We'll see. Thanks. I was interested to uh, hear a little bit more about what you said about the way the Spirit is active in converting both the missionary and the one to whom they engage. Mm -hmm. um, it, it resonates well with Leslie Newbegin and, and oh, a lot sure. of, of uh, his call to uh, go into the engagement with a respectful, uh, open attitude. But I wondered if you could say a little bit more from your uh, study, particularly with Buddhism or Hinduism, um, a little bit more what that looks like in the life of a missionary. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, I think. Because I'm... Okay. I mean, obviously, at one level, we want to see something like Cornelius' conversion was conversion to Christ. Um, and that's a fundamental conversion. What's so fundamental about that conversion, however, is also complicated by the fact that we're told, even before his baptism and his conversion, that he was a just man. Okay? Um, and his conversion then resulted in baptism. Uh, both water and spirit baptism, right? Now, what about Peter's conversion? Um, Peter, I think, certainly came about eventually to a theological conversion. At one point in Acts 10, he says, I now know, right? But there's a real sense in which this theological conversion is only, if you will, the aha moment that is the result of an affective conversion, a heart conversion. Purity and impurity, you know, those kinds of things are not theologically, I mean, they're not uh, propositionally demarcated as much as they are habituated, if you will, right? And, and you know, he's got to have dreams, three of them, visions, three of them. I mean, he, and then he's got to meet the other. He's got to then cross over into Cornelius' household. He's got to experience all these things. Why? Because for him to come to even that level of 
cognitive, intellectually registering what this was all about, his heart had to be touched. Okay, so, I mean, I, th I think that those are obviously the more challenging parts. They're real to us. I mean, there's no real conversion if our hearts aren't transformed at the end of the day, right? Um, we're all, we as even, I, know, I think this is an evangelical place here. <laughs> Do I get an amen out of that one? <laughs> all right, okay. I'll ask for more amens later. Um, But sometimes I think as evangelicals, we, we reduce the, 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 these kinds of things to, um, to the propositional level. Even though we are, I mean, evangelicals are, are people of the heart as much as anything else. But I guess here's what I'm trying to say. We haven't developed as good a theological vocabulary to get at the fact that we are people of the heart. I mean, I think, I think that evangelical pietists have that kind of vocabulary, but a lot of other evangelicals who are, are leery about pietists and Pentecostal kinds of traditions, and they're a little bit worried about all this heart stuff, you know, and, uh, and, and I agree, it's, it's complicated, it's complex. I mean, that's why it's, it's challenging, you know, because what does it mean for me to meet the other and be transformed by, by the other? I mean that seems to undercut everything we're committed to as evangelicals in terms of doing mission. The point of doing mission is not so that I can be converted. The point of doing mission is to get other people converted, right? We get an amen out of that one? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, but, but we do testify the fact that we've been, con we don't use that language, oh, because that gets complicated. <laughs> you know, we'll testify to the fact that, that we've been deeply transformed and I wonder sometimes how many of our evangelical missionaries, if you will, suffer shipwreck. And I mean this in a descriptive sense only. Evangelical missionaries who give up on being evangelical and missionary because their evangelical tradition doesn't have the vocabulary that grants them the space to have the kinds of, to embrace the kinds of transformations that they feel forced to in light of encountering the other, right? And why, is that, why don't we have that language? Because we don't have the language to talk about how these things touch at the depths of our heart without feeling like we're betraying Jesus somehow. There's a real difficulty there, right? As if the allegiance to Jesus understood propositionally, it's very, very clear cut. We can, we can make those propositions very, very clear cut, see? But, but in reality, it's a little bit more complicated. And if we don't have the theological language to help us to articulate some of that, then I think sometimes evangelical missionaries cease being evangelical. They either cease being evangelical or they cease being missionaries. According to the traditional paradigm, right? Because they feel that they've been transformed or they, or they just don't tell people about what they're experiencing. I've heard that a number of times, you know. They'll say, they'll come back and they'll say, I really can't talk about this with anybody because if I did, um, they might not send me back out. <laughs> or something along those lines. Um, so it's, it's at that level of affectivity, I think. And, and finding theological language to help us to, to get at that, I think, is part of our challenge. I think I get the last question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm a McDermottite or a Jungian. <laughs> so I wanna, I wanna tell you what, um, what, when I listen to Acts 2, yeah. 
it sounds to me as if a Pentecostal missiology would be, and then I'd be interested in your mm-hmm. feedback or mm-hmm. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to me in Acts 2, the work appropriated to the Holy Spirit is the work of glorifying the risen Jesus, gathering the nations to the risen Jesus, driving the nations into the world uh, to tell the world about the risen Jesus. Um, And given all that, what we're supposed to do vis-a-vis the nation, vis-a-vis the religions, is to listen to them on their own terms and then as a kind of reread, figure out how, in the midst of what they're saying, actually we can imagine the Holy Spirit glorifying Jesus, gathering the nations to Jesus, and driving the nation into the world for Jesus. Um, so my question is, is that is, which of them is that? Is, or is that both of you? Yeah. Or how, how would you... Yeah. How would you assess that? So I'm not going to answer McDermott. You have to go back. You have to read the book now, and then and then you can decide whether or not that's McDermott or what McDermott exactly is, right? Um, but I would say yes. Everything you said, I've always said that any pneumatological attempt here has always got to be considered in two respects: as a complement to Christology, not as a replacement of Christology. But in that respect, then always leading toward what I call a more fully Trinitarian way of understanding these things. Now, having said that, I would then say something like this as well. That what, I think what Acts 2 shows us is that the Jesus who poured out of his spirit, I mean, that's what he also says, uh, or that's what Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2, 32, 33, something like that. The Jesus who pours out of his spirit upon all flesh and then that flesh is then testifies to that Jesus, right? That flesh testifies to a Jesus that, if you will, the first, the, the, the audience wasn't quite expecting. Right? In other words, in other words, the witness of the Spirit is to this resurrected Christ that Maybe the prophecies might have touched upon, but there's, you know, in terms of the way in which, let's say, um, Peter, again, Luke recording Peter, referencing David, you know, my flesh shall not rot in the grave, for instance, right? The prophecy is vaguely intimating, but, but here's, here's, the, here's the clarification, here's the, the specification, right? So the spirit is also illuminating who Jesus is, Right? Uh, the Spirit is illuminating who Jesus. Here's, my, here's what I would invite us to think about. I would say that in our encounter with religious others, if it's truly the Spirit of God, then we are going to be led to a deeper understanding of Jesus that we might not have recognized or known before. Right. So, so that, 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 that's the eschatological reserve at that point. Um, which is not to say that, that you and I don't have a viable understanding of Jesus. Otherwise, what's the point of going into the world? It is to say that do, do we have an exhaustive understanding and is this all there is to it? Or to what degree might we also be transformed, enriched, 
in this process so that we then shall know him as he is when he returns.